our world is uh, filled with stories of people who value different things, different uh, people value activities even to the point that they obsess over them. People are fixated, preoccupied to the point that they can't just stop thinking about those things, whether it be a sport, a career, a hobby, an accumulation of possessions, power, position, or even obsessing over other people. People obsess over things because they have placed great value upon them. Many times, such great value that they are even willing to sacrifice themselves to attain them. You know Jay Leno. Jay Leno is um, someone who loves cars, and um, he's brought about a great collection. You know how many cars he has? 40, go up, keep going. 80, 200 plus, that's it, right there. Two, can you imagine? I mean, have a couple, that's good, but 200, that, that's, that's amazing, right? You know who Sarah Winchester is? Sarah Winchester, she inherited an income of what would be equivalent to $25,000 a day in today's money. It was at that time, it was $1,000 a day. That, that's a lot of money, right? Even for us today, right? Th so $30,000 a month, that's, that's pretty good, not bad. But in today's uh, value of that same dollar, it would be equivalent to about $25,000 a day. Well, with that money in her home in San Jose, California, uh, she continued to build until the day that she died. She was a very superstitious woman. Uh, there are symbols of 13 all over the house. Uh, in fact, I read that even in the sinks of, the, uh, of her home and the bathrooms, that there are 13 drains, 13 drains. But she obsessed over its construction. There's even hallways. Have you ever been there? Anyone ever been to the Winchester? Okay. So there's, there's hallways that lead to doors that lead nowhere, nowhere, right? So she was obsessed with that. Many other people obsess over sports teams. You know more about Football, something's coming up here in, what, a week or so? A week from today? What is that? Oh, it's the Super Bowl. <laughs> that was the World Series. No, it's, it's uh, the Super Bowl, right? And it's funny because, um, so, two of my boys love the Patriots, and one of our boys loves the Eagles. And so they're both going to the Super Bowl. <laughs> so <laughs> that'll be fun in the house on that day. But many people know more about their sports teams than uh, uh, about the Lord. They're, they don't care to look into what salvation truly means, but they'll look into uh, the past 40 years of their favorite team and who did what and their stats and everything else. They're obsessed over their teams, and it shows. All of these things, though, it's interesting because the world celebrates it. It even encourages it except when it comes to Jesus Christ. Oh, if you're obsessed like that with Jesus Christ, you're called a, a fanatic, right? That's kind of dangerous to be brought under that, brought into that place or, or, or termed in that way. But these people's obsessions, the world's obsessions are fleeting. They're empty. They're finite. They're not infinite. They're finite. They come to an end 
and they bring no value upon the person. But the value of what we are looking at this morning is beyond measure. And to God, it was worth the giving um, of himself. That's how much value there is in what we're talking about this morning. Our God placed such great value on you and I that he himself came to this earth to redeem us unto himself. The story of redemption is one of an eternal impact of perfect love that seeks and offers forgiveness in God's grace to all who would come to believe in Jesus Christ in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. In fact, if there's one theme that was proclaimed, was preached, was taught in the first century, the beginning of the church would be the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and no one could refute it because he showed himself to so many. They saw him firsthand. And yet we still preach this today, his resurrection. That's where the power of having victory over sin on the cross and death as he resurrected from the grave. But he did that because he loves us and because he placed great value upon you and I. A value beyond measure. Verse 44, once more, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. And Jesus was speaking. He was teaching this to his disciples. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. This morning, as we read through three times, we see the phrase come up, the kingdom of heaven is like. Two of the references are speaking of the value that God has placed on you and I. And the third is the judgment that is coming in the end of the age. Today, people are trying to find their purpose and value in the world that they live in. Such things, such as uh, things, activities, uh, and, and other people. And the reason they do is because of one thing. They don't understand. They are ignorant of the fact that they are already of great value to God. You're missing it. You're, you're, people are trying to find their identity in, in the things that they do, the people they please, the things they accumulate, all of those things. And, and the Lord didn't wait until you were well enough, successful enough, a somebody to come and die for you. He came while you and I were still his enemies and died on the cross for you. That's how much of a value you have to him. We do. And he demonstrated his love, love toward us again through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Romans 5.8 speaks of that. This is not a parable explaining how we found a treasure or a pearl and are willing to sell all that we have to buy it for. What do we have to offer? What do we have to offer to uh, gain um, forgiveness, to gain eternity with the Lord? What do we have to give in exchange for that? We have absolutely nothing. We are bankrupt, completely bankrupt. And so this is not that kind of a story. It's like, oh, we gave up so much, Lord, to come to you, and, and we won our salvation. 
No, we didn't. We are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. We don't have enough treasure to buy our way into heaven or even purchase, quote unquote, Jesus. He, he is the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the father except through him. And Jesus explains the value of people in the first parable by painting a picture of a situation that would be extremely rare. Have you ever found money on the ground? You ever like, well, pennies, right? You just walk over. Nickels sometimes, dimes never. When it comes, maybe you do, I don't know. Quarters, anything silver, right? Man, look what I found. You find a dollar, though. And oh my, do we rejoice, right? A dollar, five dollars. My brother, I don't know, when, when we were growing up, he must have like always been looking down at the ground because he would, he would literally find bills. Like, how do you do it, Eric? You know, <laughs> you found uh, five bucks here, 10 bucks there, a, a roll of money. It's like, it was amazing. But when you find things like that, it's rare. You know that, right? It's rare. And, and then you're just totally happy about it. Like, wow, this is this is cool. This is my day, right? And you stuff it in your pocket really fast and you walk away. <laughs> it's exciting. But can you imagine? You know, you look down, you're like, huh, that looks funny. You kind of just rub the dust off the top of something that looks like a piece of wood or something. And, and you do a little bit more and, and all of a sudden you find a treasure chest. Oh, wow, this is this is really amazing. This is really rare. Again, Jesus is using hyperbole. Can you imagine finding a treasure chest full of gold and diamonds? Well, that's like beyond our imagination. That's that's like one in 10 trillion, right? It's like it just never happens. But Jesus is using this to make a point. But you, he's saying you, you are of such value to the Lord. He is overjoyed to give everything for you. Forbes magazine wrote an article on August 23rd, 2016, in which there was a discovery of a pearl off the coast of one of the islands, the Philippine Islands. And they found a pearl now, the previous pearl, the largest one, was about uh, 20 pounds or something like that, right? This pearl was 75 pounds and valued at $100 million. Imagine that. What a find, right? That would be amazing. And Jesus is telling the disciples that the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant who's willing to go to great lengths to purchase what was of great value to him. Jesus would give all to possess what he values greatly, and he did. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, it says, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Isaiah chapter 53 verse 7 says he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Isaiah 53 verses 10 and 11 says, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. It pleased the Lord to crush him, has put him to grief when his soul makes 
an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge. Shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, you and I, and he shall bear their iniquities. It was his work, his finished work. And he saw this beforehand and he was overjoyed by you. If you've ever wondered of your value, if you've ever attempted to gain value yourself or have identified yourself with something or someone whom you believed would give you value, then you're searching for something you already possess, you already have in the eyes of God. You are his, his creation, Made in his image, you are his image bearer, and he desires to redeem you unto himself. And he made that possible through the one whom was sent on your behalf to die on the cross, to gain victory over sin and death. He values you so greatly that he sacrificed himself to redeem you to himself. That was the cost he was willing to pay for you. To God, you are a value beyond measure. But then the Lord Jesus continues to teach. In verses 47 through 50, he talks about the coming judgment at the end of the age. Again, in verse 47, he says, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This was something also that was explained by Jesus as he explained the parable of the weeds, of the tares and of the wheat. You remember that last week or two weeks ago as we studied through this chapter. Jesus is teaching his disciples that at the end of the age, there's a coming judgment. And I know that there are many within the church who are trying to save the world system. But let me tell you, that won't happen this side of the end of the age. It, it, it's not going to happen. We are actually the minority. We will always be the minority. And you need to be okay with the fact that we're the minority. Instead of saying we can save the world, we should see the world like a building that is on fire. That is really how we should see it. In that building are people who will perish if we do not tell them that the building is on fire and they need to get out and there is someone who can pull them out and place them in a safe place. As Jesus Christ, John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Acts chapter 4, verse 12, and there is salvation in no one, no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Romans 10, 13, you know that one? For whoever, what, calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. You're cheating, you're looking up there, right? 
What's interesting, though, is that God chooses to use you and I to help in this work of plucking people out of the fire. Have you allowed yourself to be used? Are you telling others the building's on fire? And if you stay in that building, you're, you're going down. There's no question about it. Now, this is, this is not, let me tell you something. I've been studying here, especially here lately, the first century church. It was not a social gospel. It was not a political gospel. It, w- it was not. In fact, politics in the church, as far as the government was concerned, oh, study the first century church. See how that all went for them. Socially, they were rejects. They were outcasts. Politically, they were outcasts. The Jews wanted nothing to do with the Christians, the people of the way. Yet today, I find it interesting that we are so inclined as the church to try and save the world. Well, in the social and political sense, we're not, we're not, we're not going to. We should be crying out and proclaiming the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Listen, he's the one that can pluck you out of the burning fires of hell. By grace, through faith in Jesus Christ. That's it. That's the best news that you could give people. They may not be saved uh, from their circumstances, but they'll be saved from eternal separation from the Father. And unto an eternity with him in all of his glory. Jude chapter 1, which there's only one chapter. Uh, verses 22 and 23 says, And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Romans chapter 10, verses 14 and 15. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom, of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Please turn with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. So we have Acts, Romans, 1 and 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and then you get to Thessalonians. So Thessalonians chapter, or 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Verse 1, and, and I want to read through this just so that we have an understanding of, of what, what was prophesied. The Apostle Paul writes to the Thessalonians, the church in Thessalonica. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us. To the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. You know who this is? The Antichrist, right? Okay. In verse 5. 
Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of the lawlessness of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. You see, there's going to be a day, there's going to be a time when God will simply harden the hearts of those hearts that are already hardened towards him, who just refuse to believe, uh, remain in the rebellion and come to destruction in the end. Turn with me after Second Thessalonians is First Peter. Let's go to Second. Um, I mean, First Timothy, and then Second Timothy. Second Timothy, chapter three. I want to show you something there. This is a, a description. I, I think it would be very fitting even today. Second Timothy, chapter three, verse one. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, brutal, or uh, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. And then the Apostle Paul says, so because it's such, futi- uh, such futility, then, then he tells Timothy to quit. You know, just don't preach, right? Just go home. It's all. No, I'm glad some of you are shaking your head. That, that's not what he told him, all right? <laughs> Blasphemy, right? What's wrong with you? It's a false teacher up there. Um, no, no, no. And, and I'm just making a point here. He didn't tell him that. He didn't tell him, hey, you're right and being bitter in heart, your, your heart being hard and, and just such uh, just a judgment that you're drawing on these people. You should be very judgmental. He didn't say that. Not at all, right? We should guard our hearts, our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus, trusting him. No, but instead, as the Apostle Paul continues on with his letter to Timothy, he says this in chapter four, verse one. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. There it is again. And by his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. 
It was a strong exhortation, right? This is a command. This is the word of God. This is a commandment that came to Timothy through the Apostle Paul. And you know what? That also comes as a command to you and I. Oftentimes we want to separate the word of God and say, well, that's applying to him, but not to me. No, it applies to you and it applies to me just as well. Romans chapter 1, verse 16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the, uh, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. There is a coming judgment. It's very clear in the Bible there is a coming judgment. Do you know salvation in Jesus Christ, forgiveness of sins, saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ? If you want to understand and, and receive his historical um, facts regarding Jesus, do your study. You will find it in abundance. There's none who refutes it. There's a lot of people who have theories, but they have no facts. There is a coming judgment but there is a Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Through him we know forgiveness of sins. We are saved by grace through faith in him. And then finally, in verses 51 through 58, uh, Jesus actually demonstrates, he tells them about uh, what their responsibility is, and then, and then he demonstrates that he himself teaches and preaches the gospel. So verse 51, once more, have you understood all these things? Uh, speaking to his disciples, they said to him, yes. And he said to them, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue. What was his hometown? Where was it? Nazareth, right? So from from uh, where was it that Joseph and Mary were prior to? Coming to Bethlehem. It's in Nazareth, right? Nazareth to Bethlehem. Back to Nazareth. Jesus went to Capernaum. He went to Israel three times. The third time he stayed. Right? So we know pretty much where Jesus was according to Scripture. But Jesus in his hometown of Nazareth taught them in their synagogue. So it wasn't that he was outside of the synagogue. He went to the synagogue. He taught them in the synagogue so that they were astonished. They were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? They were, they were amazed. We also know from Scripture that he spoke with authority, his own authority, not the authority of another rabbi, of a scribe, of a Pharisee, of a Sadducee, as is was common in that day, but he spoke with his own authority. They were astonished. They were beside themselves. And they said in verse 55, is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? This is the guy, right? His, his mom, Mary. Is not his mother called Mary? And then they made reference to his brothers. And are not his brothers, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? They had names. He had brothers. We know them to be half-brothers, right? But he had brothers. He had a mother, Mary. And then on top of that, verse 56, 
Matthew writes, and are not all his sisters with us? He had brothers and then he had sisters. They were all there. Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. So he, he knew. He knew. Hey, listen, I, I understand. I understand what you see. And then lastly, it says, and he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Verses 51 and 52, to start off this section, Jesus asked his disciples if they had understanding of what he had just said. And they said, yes, we understand fully exactly what you said. Now, that's questionable, right? Because we know how it is that the disciples didn't figure things out until when? Until his resurrection, until he came, until the Holy Spirit came and indwelt them. They were empowered by the Spirit. Right. So that's questionable. But they answered. They said, yes, we we understand everything that you have said to us. And then he responded, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure, his treasure. What is new? and What is old? What, what does that mean? The point that Jesus is making to them is that in their understanding there was a great responsibility to be wise and discerning in their teaching in when and how to bring out the treasure of knowledge that they had come to possess these things were to come about as they were uh, commanded to and commissioned to Teach and preach, proclaim the gospel. The scribes that Jesus referred to were well known in that day and age for their knowledge and teaching of scripture. And so were they in their knowledge to teach and preach the gospel. They were beginning to understand and would later really put, put it all together and, and understand how the Old Testament, the law and the prophets as they were referred to in that day, spoke of Jesus Christ and how he would fulfill their prophecy. In fact, Peter, on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, does this very thing in the sermon that he preached. It's beautiful. I, I, I had to go back to Acts chapter 2 and read it through. He made reference to Joel, the prophecy of Joel. He made reference to King David and the Psalms. And he said, oh, th this is what the law and the prophets spoke of here. Jesus Christ, the Messiah. He is of whom I speak of. This sermon exemplified exactly what Jesus was telling them they ought to do as people, as his disciples. As people who had understanding of the gospel. Peter explained how the law and the prophets spoke of Jesus Christ, whom David spoke of, and of whom Joel prophesied about second timothy chapter 2 verse 15 commit this to memory right understand this do your best to present yourself to god as one approved a worker who has no need to be ashamed rightly handling the word of truth 
handling, understanding, dividing it. Uh, being able to explain it in context, not out of context, but in context. Giving an explanation of it. Giving it the sense. It, isn't, it is not enough to just know you are saved. Hey, listen, it's good. Hey, listen, uh, there was one day when, when that, that preacher, that pastor, he preached the gospel. I understood and I surrendered my life to Jesus Christ. I know I am saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. I believe in Jesus Christ. And I have surrendered my life to him. Is it good enough to stop there? Well, it is as far as salvation is concerned. But as a child of God, saved by grace, it is not the place where God desires, desires for us to remain. He desires that we would be discerning of the times in which we live, discerning of the will of God, to have an answer to anyone uh, for anyone who asks for the hope that lies within us and to know how to live righteously before God. Do you know those things without a shadow of a doubt? Not, not a hypothesis, not a wishful thinking as like God is love and I know that he just loves me just the way I am and you know you should accept me too and, and this pleases God and no, that, that's, that's the world's theories of what love is. That is not actually a love that is demonstrated to the one who gave us eternal life. Jesus even said, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. So this strongly implies that we are to know his commandments. We are to know his word, understand it. A and then we're given the responsibility to teach it to others. Now, for the teacher, for the preacher, it is definitely not enough to know the word of God superficially. One should have a good understanding of the word of God, Old Testament and New Testament. And be well instructed in the things concerning the kingdom of heaven. We should know those things. We don't know them perfectly, but we should know them well. One of the qualifications, in fact, of pastors is that they are not to be novices, according to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 6. Not, no novices. You, you can't do that. I, was, I, I had to look up. So I know sometimes we think differently. But do you know what the average age of a college university professor is? I just had to look it up. I'm like, that's the world. I want to see what they think. Go, keep going. <laughs> Over 50, 55. Most do not achieve full professorship until well into their 50s. So really, the world values the experience and knowledge of us old people, right? And yet in the church, we seem to think that just having a bunch of peers around is all that we need. Like, come on, it's biblical. It's actually, this is godly wisdom. The young, I remember as a, as a young kid growing up, for some reason, um, well, I think I was taught to respect my elders. I, I was taught that they, there was much value in them and that they could teach you a lot of good things. I, I, I was taught that growing up. I wasn't told that they were stupid, uh, they, that they had nothing to offer. And so I was drawn to them. I remember 
um, when I was younger, I would normally hang out with the older guys. I, I just did. I, I never really hung out with, with uh, people my age. It was always a little older. And now I'm glad I did. I'm glad I, I hung out with people who were a little older because I think I've learned a lot from them. It would do the church well if we stopped looking to our peers for everything. It would do the church well to glean from those who understand the word of God well and who can speak into your lives as singles, as children, as teens, and tell you the wisdom of God that comes from the word itself. You, you would benefit a lot. We would benefit a lot. We would be such a stronger church for it. And even in this, in this example, the qualifications of an overseer, of pastors, of bishops, of elders, of deacons. Hey, listen, you are not to be a novice. Jesus was telling the disciples that they were to be able to give a sense, give sense to the word and to provide an answer that comes from heaven itself, from the word of God. And then he finally, in his final portion, um, it says here how he's been rejected in Nazareth, in his hometown. It's an example of Jesus going back to his hometown and teaching just as he had told his, his disciples to do. Even though they were all astonished because Jesus taught with great understanding, with great personal authority, they were also offended and did not believe him because they couldn't get past him being who they knew him to be. It's like, hey, Jesus, you're the son of the carpenter. Who's the carpenter? Joseph, right? Jesus was the son of Mary. They, they couldn't get past it. You, you were born. You, you were born of Mary. Joseph's your dad. They, they didn't say that, but they were alluding to it. They actually called him a bastard at one point. They said, Jesus... You're the brother of James, Joseph, Simon, Judas, and, and then your sisters, too. This denies the doctrine of Mary's perpetual virginity. All in Scripture, it's right there. They never knew Jesus as a rabbi. They were also alluding to that, implying. They didn't know him as a teacher of the law and the prophets, and so they rejected him. Completely rejected him in his hometown. We, we know you all too well. What do they see? This, they, see the, they saw the same thing that others see when they see you and I go from who we used to be to who we are in Christ. Same, same thing. Some will respond, many won't. The same thing. Jesus was fully man and he was fully God, yet they refused to see him as the son of God. They refused to. In closing... How about you? Do you really see him as being the son of God? Does, does your life reflect that? How so? Do you see Jesus as the son of God who died for you, was raised by God on the third day, and today sits at the right hand of the Father? Do you believe that there is a judgment that's coming, both of the dead and of the living? It's coming. Do you believe that? And how are you responding once more in your life to that? That reality. Are you seeing a burning building 
and telling people how it is that they could safely come out of that burning building. To God, just know this, you are of great value, a value beyond measure. And Jesus is willing to die on the cross for you and I. Just know that. Live life with the purpose of glorifying God and enjoying him by living a life that is in response to his saving grace. And I'll leave you with this. In um, First Ch- uh, Peter, in First Peter chapter 1, verse 17, and we'll close with this. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you are ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest, that is revealed in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your grace, for your mercy. We thank you that you are patient with us. And Lord, how it is that through these few verses that we went over this morning, you wanted to make abundantly clear, communicate to us how much you love us and how it is that you demonstrated that love. There is nothing that you held back. You went all the way to the cross, died on that cross, shed your blood uh, for us, for the redemption of sin, for the forgiveness of sins. You went to the grave and was resurrected on the third day. Thank you for that display of love. And I I pray, Lord, that if there's anyone here this morning who does not know salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, that today would be the day of salvation. That if they've been seeking anywhere else um, how to attain value and a right place before you, there's no amount of good works that we can do that would offset the, the, the scales and, and earn us heaven. There's nothing that we have to offer, nothing that's worthy. But the one of utmost significance, the one who could, paid it all. And I pray that anyone who is here who has not exchanged their sin for salvation, I pray that today would be the day of salvation, that they would simply surrender that to you, asking for your forgiveness, confessing their sins, and asking that you would be Lord and Savior. And I pray for all of us that we would demonstrate in our lives as a response to that love a life that glorifies you, that searches the scriptures for those treasures that we can pass along to other people. Everything in Jesus Christ that pertains to life and godliness, I pray that we would search the scriptures out and treat them as great treasure that is worth great value in our lives, that we would bless you in the way we live our lives. We bless you, Father. 
We thank you and we pray these things in